Station. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing and advertising. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Trisha Wang. Trisha is a global tech ethnographer whose fieldwork has featured in publications such as TechCrunch, Wired and The Guardian, and whose pet dog Elle has the special skill of balancing a variety of objects on her own head. Trisha began her career as a documentary filmmaker at NASA, and after a now infamous period at Nokia and six years studying for a PhD in sociology, she co-founded Sudden Compass where a focus on human insights in the form of thick data helps companies unearth new growth opportunities. She's worked with Fortune 500 companies and is a sought-after keynote speaker, having spoken at the likes of IBM, P&G, Nike and TED, where her video has racked up close to 2 million views. Trisha says, I am obsessed with discovering the unknown. And also, if her Instagram stories are anything to go by, finding the best tasting food in the world. Welcome to the show, Trisha. Hey, Giles. Right, quick fire questions, Trisha. Mac or PC? Obviously Mac. Asia or America? Asia. Hip hop or salsa? Oh, that's a hard one. You did that to me on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Salsa. Emoji or GIF? Emoji. City or village? Cities. Woodstock or Nudstock? Nudstock all the way. That's not even a question. (laughs) And lastly, an easy one. Big data or thick data? Neither. I'm not going to fall into that trap because you need both. So, um, Trisha, what was your first job and what was your first proper research-related job? Uh, My first job had nothing to do with research. And I actually did not get involved in research way later on in, in until later on in life. But my first job was actually um, being a a multi-marketing pyramid scheme artist. And so I, um, in 1996, the Telecom Communication Act had just happened in the US and that broke up the monopoly of AT&T. And it pretty much meant anyone could own their own uh, uh, phone company because back then there were no cell phones in 1996. And so anyone, so there was like a company that said, okay, well, we're going to allow anyone to be the head of their own business. And essentially it was a marketing scheme, a pyramid market scheme, where all I had to do was go find people to sign up for the phone service that they offer at a cheaper price than AT&T. So that was real. Like the actual savings was real. It wasn't like I was offering, you know, a fake product. But then the, the catch was if I found people to join my downline and if they found other people to buy their telephone service, then I got a cut of what they would sell without me ever having to leave my house. And so I um, paid for college with this, um, you know, pyramid scheme. And this, I learned everything, I think like 50 to maybe even 80% of my work skills came from doing sales because essentially how I got my first group of customers were like, well, everyone I lived, you know, in California in the capital of Sacramento. And um, 
I got my customers by saying, well, the people who are being screwed over the most are always poor people, you know, low income, marginalized people. So I'm just going to go knocking on doors to their doors because other people will go knock on doors in like middle class neighborhoods and suburbs. But I was like, those people are not as incentivized to one, open the door and two, to say, um, and I can find the people who are being screwed over the most, which is like immigrant community. So I would just knock on doors in low income neighborhoods and I would find people who are being charged two, $2, two US, you know, dollars a minute to call Mexico to call their home. Whereas I like, I can cut your phone bill in half to be a dollar a minute, which is still a lot of money per minute. But I was saving them, you know, cutting their phone bills in half. And I would find people from Ghana, from, you know, the Caribbean, from like all parts of the world. And it's essentially how I got my start in, in doing sales. And, and I learned how to build trust with people in 30 seconds with strangers, because essentially they had to trust, you know, opening this door to me. Um, and I had to then talk to them quickly about why our my offer was better than what AT&T was charging them. And I learned the art of talking to people and gaining trust and just talking to strangers and not being afraid. And then also, really, that was my way into understanding how people live when they are under you know, circumstances where they're disadvantaged, you know, or the system is set up against them. You know, I was living and in, going inside people's homes and t- having coffee and just talking to people in their living room, which also served as their bedroom, you know, for like 10 other people. But that was really where I got a lot of my social skills. Yeah. And how long did you do that for? I did that for four years, which is crazy, you know, but I made a lot of money. I mean, I was driving a Mercedes Benz by the time I was about 19 years old. I would wear like, um, you know, I would, I would dress up more. And then, and then essentially the bad thing is that like, I would dress up in a suit, you know, but then I became an asshole. That was a problem was that the money got, <laughs> so I had the whole like turn of, like, you know, the whole arc of like, yeah, I'm just trying to be good. And then like, I made a shitload of money. What the fuck is a 19 year old doing with a Mercedes Benz SLS, you know? And I was, I was like such a baller. And then I started becoming an asshole. I was talking to people who were 40 years old and I'd be like, do you want to make $10,000 a month like me? Do you want to have a $10,000 check come to you for doing nothing? Do you want to have, do you want to step away from your life and you can just take care of your kids and be the kind of father you want to be? I mean, I've learned how to become so manipulative. I became such an asshole and I learned the dark side of sales of how to con people into thinking, using shame and conning into thinking that this life was possible. And it wasn't though. It was like, it's like, yeah, I made it possible because I came on early in the pyramid, but it takes a fucking lot. And it's really fucked up because when I went into it, I had no kids, you know, I didn't have a house to pay for. I had no mortgage. And so I'm telling people who are, who are 40 years old to be like, yeah, leave your $5,000 a month paying job to make $10,000 potentially like me a month. And you can drive a Mercedes like me. And it's just like the economics and the system. I didn't understand the system. I became such a dick. Like it was the most ugly turn ever. (laughs) And, um, years old, I burned out and I was like, you know what? I don't want, I I'm a dirty, bloody capitalist. And I clearly have become so like, like morally debased that I don't want a penny. And I left it all. And, um, I mean, essentially like, you know, I started working in, in public media and I became a filmmaker, but then I'm, when I moved to New York, I was like, I will never make money again. I will make the minimum amount. I went to the other extreme and I was like, corporations are evil. Capitalists are evil. I'm only going to work in nonprofits and I'm only going to work in, you know, actually like the system. I'm only going to work with helping people get through the system, people who've been disadvantaged and I'm never going to make money again. I'm going to live on $20,000 a year. So I, I essentially just left it 
<laughs> that was like the turn I made at one. And so then that explains the next pretty much like five, 10 years of my career where I worked in nonprofit work, where I worked in, you know, literally projects. And I worked in low-income communities, working with youth to get people into college. Um, and that was, yeah, but that's essentially how I fell into that space is because I felt so shitty about myself, about who I had become. So you went from one extreme to the other and then, and then did you move slightly closer to the middle? Yeah. Then I realized how interconnected the whole system is. And I realized actually that was really naive of a decision for me because a nonprofit are dependent on corporations. You know, that's how they get their money. And they're also like four foundations, all their stocks like depend, you know, are, are, they make their money from all these portfolios. So when the economy is doing well, you know, foundations like Ford are doing well. And so I realized, wow, that was really naive of me. And I have created a binary of the world. And I need to, I need to examine why I create binaries. And so essentially, I had another, you know, uh, quarter life crisis. And um, I went to grad school, because I was like, I have to better understand how interconnected systems are. And that was why I made the decision to study sociology, who I don't, I don't recommend anyone to do what I did. Um, but it was right for me at the time, because I, I, you know, thought that that was a mentor of mine told me that that was the best thing possible. But then I realized, like, you never meet sociologists, and they actually don't contribute much to the world, usually. And um, they stay inside the ivory tower. And sadly, <laughs> They, they do a lot of brilliant things, but they often don't help make the, the world make that connection to the applicability of their insights and their work. And so I swore that I would never become the ivory tower sociologist and I would prove, you know, my field wrong, right, that like wrong, that I could be a sociologist and active, you know, intel, um, intellectual, but also work in, in the world. And so uh, after I left, and that was, that's pretty much been my life's goal for myself. So then how did you go from that into the, um, research world? Well, I didn't really, I just didn't know there was a world called research, but essentially that's what I realized that a lot of sociologists do. If they do decide to go into mm. non, not into academia, but there is a role called research in industry. And I didn't really understand it because I always thought researchers were a bit removed from product and from the business. And so I was like, well, as, as a young researcher, I don't really have a choice. I can't just be like, give me a seat at the business table. And so of course, you're not supposed to do that. But of course I did that. I was like, what's stopping me from doing that? <laughs> I don't doubt that at all. Yeah. And that's what explained how I handle the Nokia stuff and why they were like, who the fuck are you? Like, you're, you're, you're a researcher in R&D and you're telling us that our company isn't going to exist in two, three years? Like, just shut up and go back to Palo Alto. Like, don't try and influence business decisions. We know better. But I didn't know better. You know, I didn't know better that researchers are supposed to stay in your lane. And you're supposed to just work on papers and you're still supposed to publish, even though you don't have an academic position. And you're really not supposed to make waves as a researcher because you're just there to gain knowledge. And I, was, and I didn't understand that that was the game that you're supposed to play. And so I didn't play that game and I didn't do very well inside Nokia for that reason. Well, I, I want to come on to the, the, the Nokia story in case our listeners aren't as familiar with it. Um, but before I do, you mentioned there about not realizing that, that you could be closer to the product in terms of your research and, and, and the focus and way of working. So again, for anyone who's unsure, you describe yourself as a, well, you are a global tech ethnographer. Can you explain what an ethnographer is and how ethnography differs from other areas of research? Yeah, so global, so ethnography, what it is, it's just the science of observing people. And you're observing people deeply from their perspective, not your perspective. 
And so it's really, um, it's really the art of just understanding of putting yourself in someone else's shoes. It's the art and science of that. And it is so damn hard because the question is, how do you ever see the world from any perspective other than your own? I mean, as children, you know, you have two kids and you guys have two kids and you know that for a child, anything that happens, they think it's their fault. They think they're responsible for everything, good and bad, right? And they only see the world from their perspective. Mm. And I don't, I think as adults, we like to think like, wow, we're so aware, you know, and we, we can see the world from other, you can balance other perspectives. But I think as adults, we, it, that sticks with us. That is the, you know, ongoing, you know, spiritual, whatever you want to call it, battle or war or constant balancing game is how do we get out of our own head and into someone else's head? Any kind of philosophy or any kind of world religion, I think at at its core is really about getting you to understand someone else's or another group's perspective. And I think ethnography really is the science of that. And so global tech ethnographer. Well, first that name really came um, from Fast Company when they did a profile on me. Adam Bluestein is a writer. And he's the one who really gave me that title, global tech ethnographer, because he was like, well, you're an ethnographer. So you watch people and you observe people from their perspective and you help us you know, understand the world of, of, of other people. So you do that in terms of what how people use technology. And you travel around around the world doing it. And so he's the one who called me a global tech ethnographer. And I was like, you know what? That is the best title ever. And I'm just going to take that as a job title. I don't think that as a job title, but I was like, I'm going to invent that as a job title. So now there it is. Because I didn't like because it's like researchers are known to be so boring and like do, they don't contribute to anything really and they're just always like so slow and they want to just stay in their own rooms and do their own research and like talk about methods all day and I was like I don't want to be a researcher because if you're at like any kind of dinner party you're like I'm a researcher people are like okay but of what you know and then the, the interesting part is what you research right and so to me research the title doesn't mean much and I mean job titles don't mean much anyways you know and I really didn't know what else to call myself it's like researchers can't even agree what our title are because like, are you a qualitative researcher, a UX researcher, design researcher, interaction researcher? I mean, it's just there's no one word for it. You know, market researcher. So I was like, done. I'm just gonna say something that no one even knows. At least, at least they have to ask because I can tell quickly if someone's not listening to me in a conversation. Because if I'm like, yeah, I'm a tech ethnographer, they go, oh, okay. And they just go on with their own thing, you know, because you know they're in their own world usually. <laughs> and I'm like, oh does not know what I'm talking about at all. I know they don't. I made this word up and I know they have not met other ethnographers, even though I want everyone to use that title. So please use that title. So I'm not the only one. I know if someone doesn't ask me, what the hell is that? Then I'm just like, okay, clearly you are not listening and you just want to talk about yourself, which is great too, because I, you know, I'm a really great listener, but it's a good litmus, you know, at a party because I know there are no other global tech ethnographers out there, sadly. Well, you must need that as a skill, as a, the listening skill as an ethnographer, because you literally do immerse yourself in other people's lives in their in, in the context of their living their life. There's, there's a great quote, actually, that I remember Mark Ritson uses in his mini MBA module on ethnography and research in general, which is from A.G. Lafley, who was CEO of P&G for a while, which is if you want to understand how a lion hunts, yeah. don't go to the zoo, go to the jungle. I like that. We don't need to stick with that metaphor of jungle, but 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 where so where have you done this and 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 what does it actually look like? Because it sounds um really interesting the fact you put yourself in someone else's shoes and literally live as they do. But in practical terms, does that mean you literally mm. 
um, have a destination and you essentially live somewhere for a period of time? Is there a set period of time? How do you, how does that come together? I know when I describe what this is, this is, I mean, to me, this sounds so mundane and like so obvious, but I have, I have realized that for most people, this is like really mind blowing and different, but all ethnography is when I say live with people, you're right. I literally live with them. And so if you want to understand immigration, I live like an immigrant. I live like a migrant, you know, depending on who I'm with. I will literally even dress like them just because I don't want to stand out or call attention to them or to myself. And so I'll do my best to blend in. Of course, it's easier. You know, a lot of my work has been in China and I blend in because I am Chinese and I look, I also look a bit ethnically ambiguous. And so I can kind of, you know, sometimes go into different communities, but you know, when I'm in Peru, like I will blend in and a lot of people think I'm much more indigenous. And so I've done work in Mexico, but like I, when I look at, you know, study migration between in China, for example, rural areas and slums, that's right. Like I will go into the rural areas. I will travel with people back and forth. I will go live in slums. And I think that part of it is that there's so much that you can intellectualize and understand about something, but it's so different when you experience it. And it's only when you experience it do these kind of interactions that you could never have if you were studying it through a spreadsheet or even through an interview, you know, like the whole goal of ethnography is to take away as much mediation as possible. We live in a mediated world. I mean, media, the world, I mean, the word media comes from that is that we live in a world of abstractions and depending on how, and that abstraction can scale at different levels. Right. And so I would say, you know, a spreadsheet is an abstraction of an experience, you know, and if you look at a spreadsheet, the next layer up is a database and the next layer up is a data in the cloud. And the next layer up are algorithms are abstracting variables and they're trying to create greater and greater number, a greater extraction in the form of numbers. And so my goal is to cut through that abstraction. I mean, language is an abstraction, right? It's a representation of what we're thinking and of what we're doing of thought and action in the form. And so language is are words. And sometimes abstractions get in the way because they're not the actual thing. So I always love Alan Watts quote where he says that menu is not the meal, right? And so the map is not the actual trip. It's not the journey, right? And so the language, the spreadsheet, the statistics, all of these things that we see about people and about society, that's not it. Those are just abstractions. And and you have to remember that. But a lot of times we forget that. Like photos, photography, that is an abstraction of the experience. And and of course, there's no such thing as pure experience because again, you know, you can experience something, you're still putting your own lens on it. But my goal is to get as close as possible to the actual experience. Yeah, amazing. There's, there's a good example, funny enough, that I found earlier. We were talking about Richard Shotton, who, who helped us kick off the podcast. And um, he references Facebook's data which suggests that 86% of Lady Gaga fans are female. Now, you can obviously make certain conclusions from that stat and you accept it at face value, but his point is that's not necessarily correct because in contrast to that, Spotify tells us a different story from their data, which is that only 56% of listeners are female. And the point there being that Facebook data harbors a a, a bias. It, It can't capture all of Lady Gaga's fans, but merely those who willingly and publicly admit to their fandom. So, I mean, that's a very trivial example to use, but it does show your point about things being mediated. Yeah. I don't think that's a trivial example at all, because I think that example 
is essentially the actual, it, it brings to life the problem of quantification bias, yes. which is uh, valuing the measurable over the immeasurable. It's a term that I created to describe the one of the most um, common biases that I see that is the result of um, a society that is obsessed with measurement. So it's a new bias of the of the our current era of being data driven, and that and it's 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 not acknowledging. You know, when you have the quantification bias, it's like this: people don't acknowledge that all systems of measurement have forms of biases. So does Spotify's, you know, and so does Facebook's. And what does that tell you that, you know, 50 versus 86% are women? Then when it, you want to ask why, why are they fans? Like, tell us, tell us more about who isn't a fan and who isn't showing up. The, the quantitative data can only lead you so far. You actually have to go and collect what I call thick data, which is the most yeah. direct, as, as direct as possible, immediated data from humans that captures their full context of emotions and stories. And thick data is something we all collect and we all know about. We just don't do it as systematically, but it's qualitative data. It is, I just rebranded it because qualitative data sounds so boring. And so, and people can't see to what qualitative data is, you know, even. So it could be like, so I just was like, you know what? Let's just make qualitative data sound really sexy to people who are obsessed with big data. And now call it thick data. And I and now and the word has really taken on. Like people use that word and it's really unattached from me now, which makes which means it's a sign of success. You know, I see people hiring for thick data specialists. I see companies saying we want to pursue more thick data that's part of our vision or strategy. And so to me that is, you know, global tech ethnographer has not caught on so that's we'll let that one go. <laughs> thick data has and that's really important to me because that is um, words are power. And so I don't want to, I don't like to get, you know, to fight over words, but also words are power. And when you don't have a word to describe the power of qualitative data, of unmediated data, and to give people the permission to do that, then you don't, people don't have a space and they don't have a line item, a budget item. There's no, there's no practices built around that, you know, or there are, but it, there isn't a space to acknowledge that. And so this is why I coined the word thick data and I, and I've been evangelizing it like crazy to anyone who will open the door and like, let me have a space to speak about it. I'm always talking about data mm. and then telling companies to take that term and adopt it as their own. Well, as you know, we, we heard you talk at, at Nudgestock recently, just to plug that again. We plug Nudgestock in, in most episodes, actually, not always intentionally either. But your talk on thick data there really added some clarity and, and specifically talks about how easy it is to, to make assumptions and misinterpret what probably falls under the banner of, of, of big data. Yeah. So how does your work, Tricia, then help identify new customers and, you know, potential opportunities and, and hidden markets? It might be a good time, actually, to give us a summary of, your, of the Nokia story you hinted at earlier. Ah, well, the Nokia story in 30 seconds is just essentially that they, I think, represent any kind of modern enterprise where at the time when I joined them in 2009, they were at the top of their game. Um, everyone owned a Nokia phone and they created the cell phone market. I mean, they were amazing because they made phones affordable. I mean, for, for me, it was a dream come true to work at a company that I felt were really great in terms of using capitalism to improve people's lives. And they made cell phones affordable for the entire world. They equalized access to technology. I think that's very noble. And I was so proud to work there. And so essentially my talk, there's a 20-minute version up on TED, but like the one-minute version is that after doing a lot of ethnographic work 
in China and India, Mexico, all markets that Nokia dominated, especially emerging markets. And I did a lot of work with migrant workers, with immigrants, with um, just you know young people, young users. And I essentially told them that like, look, the iPhone had just come out. And people thought the iPhone was just going to disappear. People, you know, really smart people thought it was a fad. I just want to remind people that. Pete Palmer, I don't know if people, there's a video of him like with sweaty armpits on stage just being like, you know, it's like the iPhone's not, it's a fad. It's just going to go away. And a lot of people thought this, you know, who's going to pay this much for a smartphone? But I told them, I said, look, the iPhone, the smartphone is actually going to become the new product that everyone's going to want. And if you don't build it, your customers are going to disappear. And Android had just come out. So Android phones that were using Android started to look like, you know, the iPhone. And they thought I was crazy because they're like, what is your data based off of? You know, I was like, well, I've been doing decades of research in these markets, but also um, so I've been able, I can understand the system and change over time. But I really think that we're now approaching a moment of change and we're just two, three years out. So if you can just change your entire supply chain and change your entire business model, and at least I, mean, I wasn't saying doing it now, I was like, let's consider doing it, but we need a lot more quantitative data. I was like, look, all of this, all of my recommendations are based off of qualitative data because there is no quant data to show anything that's emerging. If you want to look at hidden markets and customers, Customers, that quantitative data doesn't exist. It literally isn't possible. No one has said these are variables that are important enough that we need to collect information on to measure, right? And so that's what makes it hidden. That's what makes it emerging. So to me, it's baffling when companies are like, we want new markets, hidden, hidden markets, new customers, and we're only going to look at quant data. And it's like, why would you do that? Because that data doesn't exist. It's emergent for a reason. So you need to look to thick data, which is the kind of data I collected for Nokia. And I was like, look, you know, all of this is because I've lived off with families. I have done household income analysis. So I have some numbers, but nothing at scale. So I want to work with your your analytics team. Back then, there was no data scientist yet. It was just the field was just being invented as the sexiest, you know, the sexiest job of the 21st century. Data science had not had just, we're, we're like, it was like two years out. But then I was like, yeah, I need to talk to your BI, like your BI people, your analysts, and let's actually look at the numbers and figure out how do we get some good quant figures around this so that we can create a holistic story to tell and a real recommendation for a real business case study, uh, not case study, but a real business um, like forecast so we can make the right kind of you know models to show why, what happens if you're only to stick with uh, feature phones and what happens if we start to transition the business into smartphones? How does that cannibalize the existing business? But, you know, I was all about, we need to create a business story. And that's, and I found out first researchers, you're not supposed to do that as a researcher, God forbid that you like actually step into, you know, anything around business forecasting and Buddha forbid that you're supposed to like talk to, you know, um, business analysts. And so I wanted to do all of that. And pretty much they were like, no, we have, we have all the quant data in the world and not, not one thing shows us that our customers are going to, you know, buy smartphones. And I was like, duh, obviously, because like I'm looking at something new and emergent. So, <laughs> they, you know, they didn't want to look at it. So that their business, they went out of business in a few years, essentially. And we all know the Nokia story. And so I think Nokia represents something that all companies are suffering from, which is that which is what I was calling the quantification bias, which is that the modern enterprise has become a state, uh, has been built into a state of perfection. It's a machine. It, it knows how to optimize. It knows how to get, you know, get to bring out every efficiency from Taylor to Demings to statistics, you know, assurance quality management, all of this, Kaizen, Six Sigma. I mean, it's built for the mass and it's actually gotten really good at that. You know, the, the modern supply chain is impressive to study. And this whole entire world was built for predictability. 
and it's built for a closed system of known variables. And that's the modern enterprise. And that world no longer is closed, uh, as closed, and that world does not have as many known variables because now with the advent of the internet, we live in a networked world and the world is much more visibly diverse. And I say visibly diverse because I, I think people talk about diversity as if it's like suddenly something new. And I was like, no, no, like, you know, people of color and, you know, um, all these people, like differently able people, all of these people have always been here. It's just, they're now more visible to you, you know, to the people who are in power. And so now the world has become more visibly diverse and there's all these new variables that the system has to consider. And it's much more open and dynamic. And as a result, the old ways of managing the modern enterprise doesn't, doesn't work anymore. And so what's interesting and why I'm fascinated with marketing, why I work so closely with marketing is that marketing is a relatively new function. You know, it's come about formally in the 80s. And it's really in charge of, the of you know, when it first came, it's like, you know, I think it became the soul of the enterprise because essentially it was the one place in the organization that was allowed to be creative. It is, you know, I, I always call, I always describe marketing as the enterprise's interface with the customer. Literally, it's the interface. It, it's, it is the membrane that sits the closest to the customer. It is the, it, it is the function that really listens to the customer's voice. And over the last 40 years or so, you've seen marketing change because at first it was brought in to deal with the last mile of like, okay, the marketing, the, the enterprise is not going to do anything different, but marketing will take care of that last mile in terms of the messaging of how our product reaches the customer. And then, so we're going to build our product the way it's going to be built. But you marketing, you're going to be responsible for finding our customers and making us look cool and creative. And then we'll have brand equity, right? And then marketing, cool, cool. For a long time, they thought they were safe doing that. But then marketing was like, oh shit, like decisions are being made in ways that we can't even, you know, no, we can do the best job at marketing, at being creative. But if you have a crappy product or if your strategy is screwed up and it doesn't actually work, then there's nothing marketing can do. So now marketing has a moving up and up and trying to get a seat at the table. And now what I say is marketing departments are in charge of the unknown. You know, they are in charge of actually delivering growth now. So the enterprise has become so desperate for growth. They went to like one point, it was like sales, sales, make us grow. And then, you know, sales were the darlings of the organization, right? But then they were like, and even before that, it was like supply chain, supply chains in charge of growth, right? And before for that, it was finance. So it was like finance, then it went down to supply chain, and then it went down to sales, and then it became marketing, right? Now marketing departments are in charge of, of d delivering growth. And what's really, really crazy is that that charge for growth for the CMO has come at the same time has, as ad tech has come into the scene to say ad tech is now promised the CMOs is that, you know, we will lead you to more customers. We will actually help you identify where those new customers are. So CMOs have placed their hope in tech. And what I, what I pointed out earlier is that there is a paradox because how do you get new customers? If you want growth and not just like, you know, some efficient growth, if you want like crazy, you know, like, you know, crazy kind of money growth, then you need to look at variables that have not yet been measured, but you have ad tech saying we will deliver that new growth. And so if anything, I would say technology being data-driven has distracted CMOs from their primary job, which is to be the interface, the modern enterprise's interface with the customer. And CMOs, and, and I think that distraction has been, a, you can even call it a manipulation, is that CMOs have had a very unfair mandate, is that they've been saying, they've been told, 
by the CEOs and by the whole inner industry. Our industry is so screwed up that like tech companies have been told, have been telling them, you know, use our tools. These are the tools that have been built to optimize. But instead, they've been saying our tech tools will deliver on discovery, on discovery of the unknown, of discovery of new customers. And this is really fucked up because that means the expectations of CMOs are screwed up and they are not set up for success. And so marketing functions are being tasked with growth. And we wonder why the CMO tenure is shorter than ever. And the whole entire marketing function, I think, industry is really, really in a tenuous state because now companies are like, you know what? Maybe we don't even need a CMO anymore. You know, companies like Hyatt and Coca-Cola are getting rid of CMO. And so maybe some are saying maybe we don't even need all, all of, you know, what are what are the job of agencies? And so now you have like, are they just being creative or are they supposed to help us be data driven and being digital and, and digital means like ad tech, you know? And for, for most people. And so there is all these paradoxes that are happening. And so that's why the CMO tenure is so short, because they're being placed in unfair positions and agencies are in a very tenuous position. And so really, I think marketing needs to completely change. They need to do what I've been telling, saying research needs to do for a while, which is that stop moving, stop trying to be a guru. And, and you have to become a guide for the entire enterprise to get to understand the customer, like stand up for something and stand up for the thing that the modern enterprise doesn't know how to do the, the most and needs to do the most, which is understand the voice of the customer. And marketing has always been the, at the seams, has always been the interface of the customer, but they've been using technology to be be that interface, they've been using the dashboard as an interface, whereas the dashboard should be a supportive tool. It should be an enabling tool to help them understand their customer. Instead, people marketing has used the dashboard as the replacement for that understanding. And so they've conflated what the dashboard, the analytics dashboard should be. It is not a replacement for understanding. It should be a tool for enabling the understanding. And so as a result, Companies that are adopting, going data-driven, going digital, you know, adopting all these dashboards and forcing their agencies along this process, and agencies really not putting up a fight, is that the dashboards, all this ad tech stuff has removed people farther and farther away from the customer. And marketing is the last function that actually has a mandate to understand the customer. And meanwhile, you now have design that is now fighting for a seat at the table over the last 10 to 20 years. And design has said, oh, marketing, they're just doing you know, market research. We design, we understand people. We're doing design research and everything is about innovation. And we actually can handle that. We'll take away those budgets for marketing and we're going to do a better job. And then traditional consulting firms like the McKinsey's, the big fours are like, oh, you know, we actually can tell you how to grow. We're not just going to just deliver on efficiencies anymore. We're going to handle, we handle innovation. So everyone is at the seat with marketing. And then you have traditional market, you know, consulting firms like the big fours. And then, you know, the Deloitte's and the McKinsey's and the, and the BCG's. And then you have design all saying we understand the customer and we can deliver growth. So of course the CEO is totally fucking confused. Who's actually going to deliver on growth? And if marketing doesn't take a stand, we're going to see the CMOs disappear. And you see now traditional consulting firms are now teaming up with design. They're now buying them like crazy. So you don't actually have a three-way war anymore. You just have traditional consulting firms. You're like, you know what? That, those design people, they, they are offering something. They're going to make us look more creative to our, you know, a traditional you know, MBA approach. So we're just going to keep, we're going to keep buying them up. So that's why you see this crazy buying frenzy. 
And so I think marketing is in a really tenuous position because it is being misled and really drawn by technology. And meanwhile, traditional consulting firms are eating into the budget. And, you know, it's really about who has the ear of the CEOs, who has the ear of the boards. And this is why I'm really excited about, you know, Ogilvy has started their own consulting firm. And I really think that there is a chance for them to do something very different. So anyways, that's my long rant on like, you know, why, why, um, how do you identify new customers? And this is what we do at Sudden Compass, our companies, because that's why I'm like, I don't work with other researchers. I work with, you know, I, my co-founder is a product person. You know, my co-founder is also an executive talent person. Like we think, Problems that need to be solved are multifunctional and marketing can no longer stay in its lane of just being marketing. They have to become guides and not just gurus. They have to reach out to the entire organization. Otherwise, we're just going to keep seeing the role disappear. Spot on, Tricia. Spot on. Well, I can't top that and I probably can't even add much. So let's just let that cracking call to action to CMOs and businesses everywhere just sink in. So let's move on to something I know you're rightly passionate about in the industry, which is diversity and inclusion. What do you think? As an industry, are we heading in the right direction? I absolutely think we're heading in the right direction because at least we're talking about it. So it may seem really messy, but where we're at is that at least we're talking about it. Um, but the thing is that the, the way I see a lot of people talking about it is that they're very motivated to do diversity and inclusion stuff because they think that they want to be good people. And so they want to do good by saying, well, of course, as a good person, I'm not racist. And of course, I welcome everybody in every color, right? And I think, though, this is the bad part is that I'm talking about good or bad, but not trying to live in binary. But I think this is a very shaky ground to be motivated to do you know, diversity inclusion stuff. Because what it means is that they're centering themselves by focusing their motivation as, as goodness. Because then it's really hard for them to take feedback on when their diversity and inclusion um, uh, projects or efforts aren't working. And usually they have a very hard take time taking feedback from the very people they're trying to help. And that's what I see inside organizations is that it's usually people in power who are the head of these diversity inclusion efforts, who are the true spearheads, right? It has to be, it's usually, um, it's usually a white person who first says, okay, we really have to do it. And so, and if it's a really, you know, much more aware person, they will put a person of color in charge next to them, right? But usually they're saying, no, we want to do something good now because diversity inclusion is important. So then they do all these initiatives. But then, you know, these things are hard to predict how they're going to go. And so oftentimes a person of color will give them feedback, a brave person of color, right? Most people just don't want to say anything because they're afraid of losing their jobs and they don't want to create waves. And they're just so happy that this is even being talked about in the first place. And so then there's a brave person who speaks up and say, hey, that thing that you're doing it's actually not so inclusive, you know, and actually doesn't make me feel very welcome. If anything, it makes me feel very weird. And it's actually kind of passive aggressive. And now I feel that you're exoticizing me and I'm being fetishized. You know, there could be, I've been in that situation. I've seen a million responses, you know, where there, and then, and then the person who started this diverse inclusive thing goes, what? Like, I'm a good person. Like, they don't say that, but they're just so offended and they feel like they're so unappreciated and they just feel so resentful because they're like, I did this to help you. And now you're mm. actually saying, I didn't do a good job. And it's because they're coming from this perspective of their motivation was to be a good person. When really, so what they hear is, 
you're not a good person and you're potentially a racist, when all that person of color or that person, or maybe it's a differently able person, all they were saying is, hey, that thing you're, you're doing made me feel X. It was not even about that person. And so instead of just saying, oh, why did it make you feel that way? Let me better understand that person who's in charge, who has the power, is just gets so wrapped up in their goodness, you know, and then being seen as a potentially bad ally that they get obsessed about that. And so what needs to change is we need a new language and we need a new space to talk about these things and we need new leaders. And the people who are the two people who I would advise us to look to who are just doing the most amazing giving us, you know, amazing work in the world, who are in the trenches. And the first one her, the the writer her name is Ijoma Alua and she's written a really important book so you want to talk about race. And she gives you a language and goes through every single hard question. And she comes from a marketing background. That's the most amazing part is that she's a marketer at heart. And she, and I think it really shows because marketers are brilliant communicators. And she asks, you know, really important questions in the book and just tells you and helps you answer them. So like, she's like, well, how do you answer questions question if someone says, you know, what is privilege? You know, why am I always being asked to check my privilege? Or, you know, is police brutality really a thing? Or, you know, so she goes through each thing. Um, and her next book is going to be about the fragility, the um, white male fragility. And so she's talking with topics that like, I don't even know how to talk about publicly because I'm just so that I have fear over. And she is so brave and courageous. Any, especially any person of color who, but anyone, it doesn't have to be personal, like anyone who's willing to truly help the community and all of us move forward and giving us a language for that, I think is very brave. And the second person who we, um, whose book um, and talk we need to look at is Baratunde Thurston. His new TED talk is freaking mind blowing. It is the one <laughs> TED talk that I think everyone needs to watch. Um, it is about, um, his book, his title of the talk is just how to deconstruct racism. And it is so amazing. And I think everyone needs to watch it around the world. And he also has a book on called how to be black. Um, so those are two writers and two you know, thought leaders who I think are pushing our space to think about why, you know, how to give a, a new language. And the other person who you have to all read when it comes to anything about diversity is Dr. Stephanie Johnson's work. She actually was a speaker at Nudge Talk, and it was the first time I got to actually see her speak in person after seeing her in the news. But she does some pretty mind-blowing work on how companies actually perform better on the stock market when they actually invest in diversity and inclusion. Dr. Stephanie Johnson was absolutely fantastic at Nudge Talk this year, not, not least for how she dealt with the um, sound issues and at the start of, of her talk, which would have thrown thrown a lot of speakers. But she spoke about what we can do to to mitigate unconscious bias, and it was the she frames it as the ABC. So we all need to admit that we have biases. We need to block it, and we need to count it to support diversity. We'll stick a link in this episode's listing to to that talk from Nudgestock because Ogilvy have shared all talks now on their YouTube channel, I believe. So um, yeah, it's it's well worth watching. I think another thing that needs to change is that we need people people who are not people of color, like who are not different, like people who, who don't, you know, essentially white people, like people who don't fall into the differently abled or, um, you know, we need essentially more people who identify as straight white males to care and to speak up because we can't be the only ones. It can't just only be the queer people. They're differently abled or the people of color speaking up. We need more 
um, people who identify as straight white males to speak up. And one, um, there's a really great Twitter hand, um, Twitter on feed on this or a Twitter thread by JP Hansen, who was the star of the first podcast. And he talks about how complex problems require thinking outside the box and you have to cover as many angles as possible. So he's like, of course you need more thought deviation and that can come from diversity. And so the best teams are always more diverse. And so I think he gives a really great language for this also. Um, which I don't, you know, and so I think this, we need more people like him just writing about diversity from different perspectives. And so that's a thread that I, that I would advise us to all look at and I'll send them after the talk for us too. Yeah, please. I mean, I couldn't agree more. We certainly need more people like JP Hansen, but, but equally it comes back to one of your earlier points with, which was it's, it's about how we receive communication. It's not just about how we give communication. So that example you gave where there was a slight conflict and misinterpretation of someone's comments about something not making them feel very good is, 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 is precisely that. So asking the British public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking for questions to put to our guests. So as usual, we've selected two, and I'll start with Mark, who is a marketer, and he has asked... I read that you have been doing research on anonymity at Harvard. What's your view on anonymity online? Is it more liberating in nature or more of a license for hate? Look, I think people will be dicks regardless. <laughs> Doesn't yes, You don't need yes. to be anonymous to be a dick. And I think our current political environment proves me right. And I don't think I need to do any more research just back up my, that point. <laughs> And so what I what I believe is that we need to protect world. Uh, you know, my work is all about protecting spaces for anonymity because I think the modern the the internet and our society has been has been born out of systems that have allowed for anonymity and it's actually critical to our society and if those places disappear we're going to see the seams of this society like of our this society we built disappear so modern democracy is dependent on anonymity on you know we don't ask um we don't track what people who people vote for you know that's an anonymous decision um, we have to verify their identity, but the vote is anonymous. Whistleblowing, the very act of making sure that public officials and any officials stay and 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 uh, do and stay true to what the mandate is, is, is based off of whistleblowing, right? That has to always be a space. The ombudsman for institutions, that existed way before democracy, you know? And so, and then we need anonymity because oftentimes the very systems are that we built are oppressive for people and or don't aren't built for certain people in mind. And so people need spaces to talk to each other. And so that what what I'm referring to is that um you know a lot of early movement was ba- when was ba- a lot of work in um you know queer queer organizing is that people couldn't outright say hey I am so and so and I want to fight this law. You know because the system at the time was built against people who were queer, who identified as LG, LGBTQ. And so that was, you, you needed, the internet served a space to allow people who were coming out the closet or who knew that they were gay to come and talk to each other and to build those uh, social connections that eventually could then become more visible. So it's not about a world of whether anonymous or not. It's about protecting spaces for that in the system to see that from a systems perspective, you need spaces for anonymity for the system to operate at its optimum, right? In in terms of the system that we built, which is equality, right? And we can't always 
have equality because we always, that's just not possible. But we have to have spaces for when equality is not, for those who are not benefiting from the very current rules, they need spaces to connect and then to change that. Um, we need anonymity for, for example, Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, just for our own personal lives, you know, we need, there are things that we do that maybe we're not so proud of that we need help on, but society condemns, you know? And so Alcoholics Anonymous is, 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 is anonymous for that reason. Um, suicide hotlines, like it is shameful. It is not socially acceptable to talk about suicide. As a society, we don't talk about mental health. You know, I mean, people freak out. It is your job is at risk if you were to say, I am thinking about committing suicide. But people think about these thoughts all the time because we, um, for many reasons, and you need safe spaces for people to connect. So for that reason, as you know, I believe that it's not that we, you know, it's it's that you need spaces for anonymity, but you also, we need to think about how do we make sure that um, Twitch has done a really good job of, you know, there's plenty of spaces like Twitch where they allow for anonymity, but they allow the community to become the police for any harmful behavior. So there are other ways that you can regulate people being dicks. And so we don't we don't often think about that. So I want us to think about how do we come up with different ways for regulating that. And that doesn't always um, mean like not allowing for anonymity. I hope we're allowed to, you know, speak freely on this podcast. Just because I think when Rory, I, I know Rory has to curse like hell, <laughs> but when a British person sounds so much more refined, you know, like, yeah, and I was like, we're going to talk about shit. And I'm like, oh, we're going to talk about shit. And so mine sounds so much more, <laughs> you know, I'm American, as you know. Fucking crack on. Okay, I will crack on. <laughs> so secondly, then Kit has asked, you talk about human desires shaping how tech is used, not the other way around. Do we too easily believe humans follow tech? And why is this so? Absolutely. I think we live in a world of where we make a linear construction. So the sociological answer is that we think in linear terms. The world is easier, more manageable if we say A causes B, therefore B causes C, right? That's a very linear argument. As opposed to say, we live in a complex systemic world. No one wants to hear someone say that's the answer, you know? And so <laughs> it's much easier to be like, you know, the iPhone or the Mac or technology has caused the world to be more X. And you can literally break down so many news articles based on this construction of like social media has caused young people to have ADD, to be, you know, to not have a plan in life, to become more alienated from each other. When it's like, well, what if it was the other way around? What if our human desires for sometimes, what if some people who didn't want to have face-to-face -face interaction with people built the technology in such a way that didn't require as much human interaction and just all the mediation was over this way or a certain way, you know? And so I think a really great example of that is Twitter. Like the way we use Twitter now is all is really, I mean, Twitter as a pure tech, it's very different from how Twitter is in use, you know, and what it is now. And I don't, I was one of the first users, you know, first couple hundred users of Twitter, and I can say it is very different now. So like the hashtag emerged as a human use because humans wanted to better track to say, hey, like, I want to know when other people are also talking about, for example, Brexit, tacking, you know, ta hashtagging Brexit, right? 
And then I want to know like all these subcultural things that have come out that like maybe I want to know other people who are also weird like me and also like to talk about hot dogs. And so, you know, how do you track that? And so how do you train the machine to better track that? And before there was no variable, there was no machine saying hashtag this. It was people who came up with that. And then Twitter, the technology adjusted to that. And you see that really with the development of the iPhone. You know, I'm just going to open up my screen right now and go into systems. I'm sorry for all the Android users. But if you go into systems and you look at, um, okay, my iPhone is in Spanish, but I think in English, it must be like uh, screen time. In Spanish, it's tiempo en pantalla, but like screen time, right? And you can now determine how much you can track your screen time. Well, a lot of this, and you can then determine which apps turn off during which time, right? And I think this is this is a, this is a, a perfect example of how human desire to say, wait a second, maybe we need to build in more measures for to give feedback to how often we're using technology. Well, that is a, a good example of how humans also change the design of technology. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think it's so easy to, to either miss that or in hindsight think it was the other way. I mean, even just your example of Twitter with hashtags. I mean, that's exactly the direction it went. Exactly. And those are small like design examples. Like, Let's just not even forget the biggest thing is that humans design technology. So there's actually an, an engineer, a coder, a founder, a set of people who actually made decisions on how to design a, a piece of technology, right? And I think like yeah. that, that always reflects the human desires. I mean, if you look, I'm right now in a, a meeting room that you booked for us and I'm looking at the air conditioning and it's been set at room temperature at 65 degrees. Well, someone, and that's where the automatic setting is. Well, someone designed that and someone made a decision around that, but actually they didn't. And I, and it probably, it could have been a male because the human body um, for male temperature is different, uh, which is for women. But for so long, we thought we based off it off of male body. So I don't even know if the female designer was a female of this air conditioned set unit. But the point is that um, that is how bias happens. Is that it becomes so ingrained to us that when we design something, we don't even question it. You know, regardless if it serves yeah. us as the designer or not, if it, whether it was a female designer or not. And so I think that those are like. It, like every, you can look into everything as an example of how it's a reflection of designers. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think like we should get rid of just saying, oh, well, we can have no desires that's going to affect technology. You know, it's like, no, that's not possible. But the key is for us to surface what are the biases that we're putting in? What are the desires that we're putting in? And let's put it on the table so that we can say we consciously designed it in this way and we know it leaves some groups out. So either we have a plan for that or we don't have a plan because it's not in the budget. It's not in the product timeline. But these are the conversations we coach um, You know, our partners. I know my co-founder, Matt LeMay, is a product, is a, a product leader. And so as a product manager, we work with a lot of product teams to say, how do you actually surface your biases around data and how you design and make these decisions much more explicitly as opposed to it biting you later? So the final part of the interview then are our four pertinent poses we put to all of our guests. So these are our usual questions, Tricia. So number one, what advice would you give to your younger self, your 19-year-old Mercedes driving self? <laughs> God, the douchey Tricia? Well... <laughs> How about the advice is like, don't be a dick and don't be a douche and don't let money deceive you. But um, amazing, yeah. Um, the, the advice that we give you, know, this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Is that I've always been big on like learning how to give, you know, give feedback. You know, like how do you give feedback well? But um, someone said something really profound to me that their mentor said to them, which is that like it's your job to receive communication well. And I was yeah. like, wow, I've. 
worked a lot on how to deliver communication, but I don't think we talk enough about how to receive it well. So I wish that my younger self would have worked on that, which is like to notice, to to not say don't be defensive, but no, I wish I would have had like a button in my head that said, oh, notice every time you get defensive, examine it. Notice every time that someone else does something annoying, examine it. Because it's usually probably a reflection of yourself. Like, I just wish there was a button in my head to say examine it as opposed to like being mad at myself. Like, oh, there you go, Trisha. You were, you were defensive again, you know. But more like mm-hmm. just examine it and like really talk to it as opposed to just trying to say, no, I will not be defensive, you know. Because then that doesn't help you. It doesn't get you anywhere by living in a binary as, as I have learned the hard way. Yeah, I, I need that button. <laughs> I really do need that button too. Question two then, if you could banish one thing from your industry, what would it be and why? I would banish the word data driven. I think this is uh, evil <laughs> that is misleading. Our home fire marketing industry, entire industries, you know, the whole world is obsessed with being data driven. And that is dangerous because the data tells you it, it can mislead you. It's like the data can tell you a million things based on what you want it to tell you. What we need to move to is being insights driven. It's what what are the insights in the data? And that's what leads us to insights. And the insights is what leads us to action. But data driven itself is totally, totally dangerous. Agreed. Are there any books that you would recommend? Question three. Oh my God. I have several books. I'm going to talk very quickly just so you don't cut me off because I have so many books that I literally am reading like right now that I think the world needs to read. So I'm going to go through this book quickly, but I will speak clearly also, which is first, everyone needs to get Kat Holmes' book, which is called Mismatch, How Inclusion Shapes Design. And her whole work is, you know, she did, she started off her work at, um, you know, one of her past work was at Microsoft, but she did the whole inclusion design toolkit, but she really can help an organization just look at, well, how do you actually design better things um, for uh, a more diverse and inclusive society. Second book that you everyone must get is, as she's a Brit, Carol, Carol, Caroline Criado Perez. Her book is called Invisible Bias, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And she actually will go through example by example of how the world is actually more dangerous for women because we don't take into account data that affects them differently, you know? And I hope her next book will be about people of color, but I'm so glad she started off with women. Another Brit, okay, James Bridle, is he's written a book, New Dark Age, Tech and the End of Future. If you want a, an actual nuanced take on tech and a really from a very poetic but also digestible perspective on everything of why the world the way is the way it is, why Silicon Valley has created this world, and what is going on with you know the internet, James Bridle is a book to turn to. And then Two other books is Clive Thompson has a new book called Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. Just buy it. He <laughs> goes to explain how engineers, you know, programmers, um, computer programmers have totally remade the world. And um, the David Rowan is another, another Brit, but he wrote the book Non-Bullshit Innovation, How the World's Smartest Leaders Manage Change. And he went to companies like Intercorp and Peru to, you know, companies in, you know, Switzerland to understand, you know, to companies in China of like how all these companies who are not being seen as like the, the most innovative are actually doing really amazing non-bullshit innovation. And he talks to leaders and explains how they're doing it. And lastly, I think every leader needs to get Jerry Kalina's book called Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. 
if you truly want to level up in your leadership, he says you have to understand how your childhood experience in childhood trauma. And we and if you think you don't have childhood trauma, then it's probably not the case. And that's a more recent example. But he says, you know, our childhood experiences affect how we see the world. And then that in turn affects how we lead. And he's like, we have to understand those stories we were told as a child in order to be a better leader. And he really he is amazing. He, you know, let's just get those books. So I hope you don't cut me off on the actual real uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, so no, so I should have stressed we, they didn't need to be British authors, but um, you know, always happy to fly the flag. Only two, only two of them are non-Brits, but I was. It just so happened they were British, so I was, I was really fun. <laughs> Brilliant, thank you. Well, none of those have actually come up before, so that's, that's fantastic. So thank you. Um, so lastly, then um, we always dedicate every show to someone, and we bestow that honor to our guest, who also has to give their reason why. I would dedicate this show to one of my mentors. I have many, but Gary Reichel is my mentor, and he's the founder of Chiming Ventures, which is uh, the largest venture capital firm in China, and they are behind every single unicorn practically in China. And he said, luxury is being able to spend time with people I like. And I just thought for someone who is so successful financially, for him, he's able, he now defines luxury as that. And so I've really come to see that as something so important is that I want luxury too. And luxury is not in getting things that I want, which are like a Toto toilet. That's my dream, you know, or to have 24-7. But it's actually being able to spend time with people I like. So actually, I can live a luxurious life right now. And I don't have to become a multi-billionaire. Not that that's my goal. But, you know, like I thought that was such a lovely way to understand the world and that luxury is possible right now. And we can live it graciously with people we really enjoy. Yeah, and it's um, it's encouraging to have someone of his stature make that statement. As a, as a final call to action then, everyone listening, if you head over to calltoaction.co, we'll share all of those links and everything else we've discussed in the last hour. How else can people get more Trisha Wang? Instagram's a good starting point. Yes, as you know, as you pretty much identified in the opening, they can get more Trisha Wang by going to my Instagram or my Twitter. I just use Instagram more because I'm I like to communicate with photos more. But I do Twitter like I go in periods, you know, but Instagram stories and Instagram is where to find more of me. And my website has a link to all my talks. And if and more importantly, I don't think you need to find more of me. You need to find more people who actually apply ethnography in their work. And so I've co-founded a, a whole entire Slack community um, uh, where people can meet other people who apply ethnography. And so it's like engineers and also ethnographers and marketers, anyone who uses it in their work. And it's a whole community of thousands of people around the world. And there's like meetups. And so I, that's a great place to join. Excellent. We'll, we'll include all of those in, in this episode's links, as I, as I suggested. So, Trisha, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it. Trisha deserves to be heard. Don't hesitate to get in touch with the show direct. You can fire over guest questions. We've picked up a few guest requests in recent weeks and actually managed to secure them all. So they're in planning. Uh, so keep those coming too. You can now reach us via our Instagram, which is CTA pod, or as ever by emailing hello at calltoaction.co. Show.
But I try And I try And I try And I try Yeah, hey, hey, 